So tonight we're looking at Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13 through to the end of 53. So I'm going to pray, then I'm going to say a few things and then we'll uh, have a bit of a look at this passage. So please uh, pray with me. Our loving Father, we come to you at the end of the day knowing that you are God and you are good. We come seeking to hear your voice and not the voice of a weak man. So we pray that you would enable us by your spirit uh, to understand your word, to hear your word and to obey your word. Uh, Please, Heavenly Father, teach us now. For we pray in your son's name. Amen. Poetry is powerful. It can transport us to different places and different times. It can move us seamlessly from one place to another, from one time to another. Poetry is powerful because it can imprint images on our minds. Images that can last for years, for for decades. Here are the first two stanzas of a poem that I was taught as a ten-year-old over the road at Abbotsford Public School in Year 5 by my teacher, Mr Hagen, in 1965. Daffodils by William Wordsworth I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils Beside the lake, beneath the tree, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. Poetry is powerful. And given the right circumstances, poetry can even move the heart. Poetry is powerful. The Bible and its pages are strewn with poetry. The Hebrew writers, particularly of the Old Testament, loved their poetry. This section of the Bible that we're looking at today is a poem of five stanzas. And so I want, as we're looking at this, to think about these five stanzas. So in stanzas one and five, the highlight is victory through suffering. In stanzas two and four, it's about a servant's suffering. And then when we get to the midpoint in stanza three, we're shown the meaning of all this suffering. So let's have a look at Isaiah 52 verse 13 through to 53 12. Thanks, Carmen. See, my servant will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I'd like us uh, to look briefly at these five stanzas under these headings. Mysterious identity, incredible strategy, perfect remedy, powerful humility, total victory. This poem is powerful. This poem looks at our broken world and our hope for a better future. It looks at our broken lives and our hope for restoration and renewal. At first glance, it may appear that this is the earliest depiction of a Marvel superhero. Mysterious identity, incredible strategy, perfect remedy, total victory. Or possibly when you heard the words read, maybe you were thinking that you needed to become that superhero in order to move from weakness to wholeness. However, what is written here is not fictional, but factual. Historical. There is no escapism, no make-believe. This is real. This is reality, and there is no escaping this reality. Ten lifetimes, 70 decades after this poem was written, the identity of the servant was revealed. 700 years after these words were first penned, these words came to life in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Almost unbelievably, every aspect of what is written here, every sub-point, is seen in Jesus. Jesus is this suffering servant. The poem begins in a shroud of mystery and paradox. 
we're told in verse 13 that the Lord's servant will prosper. God will make, God said, my servant will prosper, he'll be raised, he'll be lifted up, he'll be highly exalted. In other words, risen, ascended, glorified. There is no pedestal high enough or strong enough to hold him, to hold this exalted one, this highly exalted one. But then comes a stark contrast between this elevation to a position of ultimate authority and his appalling disfigurement. In verse 14, people turn their faces from him. They turn away. They refuse to look at him. He was disfigured beyond that of any, anyone else, any human. And he was marred beyond human likeness. When we were in Leeton, I was called one day to the hospital. There'd been an accident at the rice mill. Somehow rice dust had been ignited. And someone was awaiting in the hospital to be flown to the Sydney Burns unit. They weren't sure that he would live and so they called for me. I was told it was Julian Dunn. But I, I barely recognised him. Huge yellow pussy blisters covered his face and most of his body. I felt like turning away. It was hard to believe that I'd played rugby with that same guy two days earlier. The same question is raised in this poem. How can this exalted figure be the same as this disfigured one? Yet clearly he is, because in verse 15, we swing back to the exaltation theme. This appalling servant will have a profound effect on all the nations and all the rulers of the nations. A profound effect, a heartfelt effect. This is not special effects, this is real. We are witnessing an event like no other in the history of the world. This servant's distressing disguise cannot keep hidden his greatness, his glory and his majesty. We know, don't we, that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. He was beaten by the priests, hands and fists. Then beaten by a whole company of soldiers, fists and sticks this time. We know that he was whipped so that his back was shredded. Had a crown of thorns placed on his head. And he had to carry his cross through the city, outside the city, up the hill. And there to be nailed in crucifixion. And there the sustained agony the, the, the heaving up and down, nine hours of agony, of crucifixion. The second stanza picks up ideas of bewilderment and perplexity. Whoever would have thought? Who would have thought? Surely no one would have thought, thought it would turn out like this. This is beyond comprehension. Who would have thought the arm of the Lord would be revealed in this way? would have thought that when God's cards were laid on the table, it would look like this. If God were going to reveal himself, no way would we expect it to be like this. This servant is vulnerable. 
a tender shoot that could be easily snapped. This is a picture of weakness, frailty, limited life expectancy. No beauty and definitely no majesty here. Nothing, absolutely nothing, that would be compelling us to be attracted to him. Whoever would have thought that this despised, rejected nobody would have any part of God's plan. This object of pain and suffering is pitiful. No wonder people turn their faces from him. No wonder he is despised. But then another twist in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. This stanza concludes with an all-inclusive week. You and I are included. This is the common verdict of the whole human race. At very best, this first century preacher is insignificant and worthless. Not worth the time of day. Or so it appears. So it appears. Those of you who were here a a few weeks back, uh, we've heard about the arm of the Lord before, haven't we? Back in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. It's an arm of mighty power. It's an arm of great strength. It's an arm that comes with recompense and judgment. It's an arm that gathers lambs, his people, and carries them close to his heart. Is this somehow going to play itself out in this incredible strategy? When we move to the midpoint of this poem, there's another dramatic change. The poem becomes extremely personal. And whenever we deal with God, it's personal. It's personal. He, 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 him, his, he. He endured pain. He bore suffering. He was pierced. Thorns, then nails, then a spear. He was crushed. When in that darkness God turned his back on him for all the times that that we've turned away. He was punished. He was wounded. And yet, this was our pain that he took. This was our suffering he bore. These were our transgressions. This was our iniquity. This is our just punishment. Instead, did you notice what we receive? Peace, shalom, wholeness, and healing are, are what it, are offered to us. But this is so, so unfair on this servant. This is so unjust for the servant. Yet for us, it is relentless mercy and grace. 
we are offered what we don't deserve, what we could never earn. All of this is accomplished by him, through him, this disfigured, despised one from whom we hid our faces. It's not wrong to see this as a judgment from God, as a punishment from God. It is not wrong to see it that way, because it is. But the mistake is to see his suffering for his own sin. No, he suffers for our willfulness, for our forgetfulness, for our self-centeredness, for our disdain. He suffers to bring the offer of peace, wholeness and hope to us wandering sheep. Wandering, forging our own paths to nowhere. He comes with his mighty arm, his recompense, and he allows the judgment to fall upon himself. So that with the same mighty arm, he can embrace us and hold us close to his heart. His suffering as a sacrificial lamb is absolutely voluntary. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he accepts his role. Before Pilate and the high priest, he doesn't seek a way out. He willingly lays down his life in powerful humility. Peter writes about it this way. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The injustice of his condemnation and the violence of his death are stressed in this poem. He was cut off from the land of the living. He is dead. This is no near-death experience. There will be no resuscitation. He is dead. And when the soldier plunges a spear in his side, the side of his corpse, his death is confirmed. Verse 9 takes us to the grave. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was buried with those he died for, the wicked. He was buried with the rich. He was placed in the grave of a relatively rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He identifies with all people poor and rich, 
wicked and good. He was dead and buried, yet he had done no wrong. No wrongful act, no violence, no wrongful speech, no deceit. Dead and buried because of us. Dead and buried for us. The poem, however, doesn't end on a mournful note. There is triumph. God is not defeated. His plans aren't thwarted. The servant is not defeated. Jesus' life is laid down as a guilt offering. And this is the will of God to crush him. This is the will of God to make him a sin offering. This is God's will. This is the only means by which people in any age can be reconciled to God. Yet this is not the end. For it is equally God's will, it is equally God's will, that he should be raised, that he should prosper, that he should be exalted, as mentioned in the first line of the poem. He will see the light of life, and indeed on the third day he did. In a little obscure backwater of the Roman Empire in the first century, the world was changed forever. I guess that's why it's called the first century. Nothing has been able to stop the expansion of God's kingdom since. These aren't just words. This is our story. The human story that yearns for more than this world can offer. This is the trajectory of the human race from brokenness to renewal, from death and decay to life, but only in Jesus. For most of you, this is a familiar poem. My prayer is that this poem tonight may move our hearts so that we give Jesus his due, that we give him our worship, our lives. Anything less is ignoring history. Anything less is ignoring reality. Please pray with me. Such familiar words, Father. Yet still hard to fully grasp that you would allow this to happen to your dear son. That he would take my place that he would bear my sin, that he would bear the punishment that I so rightly deserve. 
Oh Father, please, by your Spirit, move in our hearts and allow these words to have their full impact. So that indeed tonight, we might again give you our lives, give you our all, because you alone are worthy of that. Please, Father, make these words more and more real to us this night and each day. Amen.